had a little technical difficulty this morning. But Tolu came through and found it, found what we were looking for. So we will <clears throat> jump into what we're doing. Good morning. Good morning. I can't hear y'all. <laughs> uh, people at home still wasn't saying good morning. Crabs. Well, we had the privilege, all six of us, had the privilege of braving through this blizzard to get here where y'all get to be home. So praise God for ease and comfort. And, and praise God that the snow wasn't too, too bad. It wasn't too bad, was it? At least not yet. It might keep going and get worse, but we'll see. Also, again, I want to thank you for those of you who prayed for me during last week. I was in a panel conference uh, with Vody Bakum and Tim Brindle talking about race, church, politics and stuff. And it was a great time. Had an had a amazing time. There were times it got a little intense. Uh, Vody is a solid brother. He's not going to back down. And I think you know your pastor didn't back down either. But it came. It was a good event. And I'm sure you'll hear more about it when it, when it comes out. I'll make sure to get you the link for those of you who are interested in what happened at the event. All right, we are continuing in our series in Romans. We ended last week, we ended chapter 3, which ended with essentially the comprehensive bad news that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and then comprehensive good news that Jesus Christ and faith in Jesus Christ can redeem anyone, whether you are a Jew that was circumcised or whether you're a Gentile that was uncircumcised is that God is the God of everyone and he's the God of everyone through faith and not work. So Paul is, is really trying to stress this reality that circumcision doesn't guarantee you uh, salvation in God now that Jesus has come, that works don't do it, that faith is what does it. And so he is trying to make it clear that there is, that even with those who have been circumcised like the Jews, which was a fundamental part of their identity in God, that even that in and of itself, now that Jesus has come, that that is no longer the way to, uh, to see themselves as God's chosen people. So to further prove the point that it's about faith and not works, and that in even something like circumcision is not in and of itself, make you one of those who belong to God in Jesus, he begins in chapter 4 highlighting Abraham, who was the father of the faith. And he wants to say, how was Abraham the father of the faith? And he's making a very logical point that we'll look at right now, beginning in verse 4 of, verse 1 of Romans chapter 4. And I quote, What then will we say, that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, has found. If Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him for righteousness. Now to the one who works, pay is not credited as a gift, but as something owed. But to the one who does not work, but believes on him who declares the ungodly to be righteous, his faith is credited 
for righteousness. So here's what God is trying to do. He wants us to know that we will be justified. We talked about this earlier. Justified by God means declared not guilty. So even though we sin and none of us are going to die and have repented of all sin, you might get into conflict, might yell at your kids or your wife and then be driving into work and then that'd be the last thing you get hit and that's it. And you don't have time. You're still working through your own struggles before you even have time to humble yourself. That sin is covered by the blood in Jesus Christ and you will be declared not guilty even though you are guilty. And so the point is, how is someone declared not guilty by God? Is it by their works or is it by their faith? And so he's making the point that like Abraham, which is the father of our faith that Paul talks about in Galatians chapter three and four, he says that Abraham believed God and it was credited as righteousness. So the same way that Abraham is righteous before God is the same way that we are righteous before God. So let's see, what is he talking about with Abraham? Well, we have to go back to Genesis 15. We go back to Genesis 15 and we see an amazing event. And this is where this theology of faith and faith in God and believing God as credited as righteousness, the theology of that comes from this scene in Genesis 15, beginning in verse 1. So he says this, he says, look, this is Genesis 15, verse 1, says this. After these events, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward will be very great. But Abram said, look, God, what can you give me since I am childless? And the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. Abram continued, look, you have given me no offspring. So a slave born in my house will be my heir. Now the word of the Lord came to him. This one will not be your heir. Instead, one who comes from your own body will be your heir. He took him outside and said, look at the sky and count the stars. If you are able to count them. Then he said to him, your offspring will be that numerous. In verse six of chapter 15, Abraham, Abram believed the Lord and he credited to him as righteousness. So here's the theological backdrop of this reality that Abraham believed what God said. Now, this is an important, it's important to understand what Abraham believed. We're going to cover this in a few moments, but let me just say this. Abraham said to God, I don't have any children. Like in their day and age, if you did not have an heir to carry on the family name, the family tradition, then your legacy died. And what Abraham was saying is, listen, I don't have any kids that are mine, so I have to give my, my inheritance to a slave it's not my own. And God says, no, 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 You're going to have an heir that comes from your own body. Comes from your own body. And then he takes him outside and says, and your, your descendants, your offspring will be this numerous, meaning you're going to have many children that resemble you, that come from you. And Abraham believed that and it was credited as righteousness. So Abraham just believed him. He believed him. This is important. So let's ask this question. Why is faith credited as righteousness? Why is believing the Lord credited as righteousness? Well, the scripture can answer that in many ways, but I want to make a couple of, just a couple of insights. 
faith is the new standard for righteousness because works is what made us all unrighteous. Works is what made us unrighteous. Faith is now the new standard for righteousness because that's what it was supposed to be from the beginning. Let me explain. This is going back now to Genesis chapter 2. So here you have Adam is created and he was given work to subdue the earth and then God placed him in the garden and wanted him to work the garden. But that work was predicated on faith and belief in God. He believes God is faith. He's, this is, I'm, God's created me. This is what I'm created to do. It's all faith. He creates Eve as a suitable helper for him, and it's all faith. So that even though there was work to subdue the garden, it was predicated on faith and believing in God. But what happened is, and if we look at what Satan did in Genesis chapter 3, when Satan comes and tempts Eve, and we know this story, so I'm not going to go through it play by play, but Satan tempts Eve, and the main temptation was you will be like God, deciding good and evil, determining good and evil like God. Okay? When they bite the fruit, that's works. And it's work that's not predicated on faith. That's actually work that God said not to do. The work that God gave them was be fruitful, multiply the earth, and subdue and work the garden. That was faith. That's what you do. Works was them biting the fruit of their own volition. They bite the fruit, and then what's the next thing they do? The next work you see is they make loincloths for themselves. They take fig leaves and cover their private parts because they, in their minds, are now determining what good and evil is. You see, that was a work that was not predicated on faith. Biting the fruit was a work that came from Adam and Eve. It didn't come from faith. And once they did that, all people, all humanity, would now have this, this idea that we determine good and evil and we define what are good works versus what God defines. This is why today you can have people who will say stuff like, it'll range from, well, I'm a good person, I don't, you know, I don't do this and I don't do that. And, they, and, they, and when, when someone says they're a good person, what do they appeal to? Not their faith, but their works. I don't steal. I don't lie. I pay my taxes. I've never cheated on my spouse. I don't have a good relationship with my children. They name all these works. You see, we've inherited a works-based righteousness that we determine what works are good versus God. It's not a faith-based. People don't appeal to their faith. They appeal to their works. You got a range like that from all the way to someone storming the Capitol and thinking that those works are glorifying to God. There's this idea that it pleases God to do work so that God is somehow pleased with works that are not done in faith. So you see, works is actually the problem. It's believing God, it's faith in God that's the issue. Now, all of us have inherited a works based righteousness. We think, hey, as long as I'm a good person, I should be okay. So the question is that how good is good enough? How good is good enough to get to heaven? What's the standard of measurement? When all those people say, well, I do this, I don't do this, I don't do this, I don't do that, they sound like the Pharisee in Luke 18. God, I'm glad I'm not like this tax collector. I do this. I pay my tithes. I give a tenth of this. I do this. That's how God hears that. It's not faith, it's works. 
to further prove this point that works is actually what got us to be unrighteous and not faith. When Adam and Eve are standing before God and he asks Adam, what have you done? And he blames it on Eve and God. Eve blames it on the serpent and God goes through and talks to each one of them. Starts with the serpent and acknowledges that this woman will give birth to a seed that will crush your head. And from that moment, Genesis 3.15, the whole Bible is answering the question, who is the seed that this woman that God was talking about? Then he looks at Eve and says, you're going to get pains during pregnancy and all of that, and your desire will be to rule over your husband. There'll be conflict within your marriage. You're going to want to do things that, that all that comes into place. Then he looks at Adam and he says this. Listen to what he says to Adam to show you that works is, and, and, and the kind of works that are inherited now are the result of sin. Listen to what he says. And he said to the man, because you listened to your wife, this is Genesis 3.17. And he said to the man, because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, do not eat from it. The ground is cursed because of you. You will eat from it by means of painful labor. It's painful work. All the days of your life, it will produce thorns and thistles for you and you will eat the plants of the field. You will eat by the sweat of your brow, which is work, until you return to the ground since you were taken from it. For you are dust and you will return to dust. So you see the consequence for not believing God in faith is now works. It's difficult work. It's, it's work that will cause you trouble. You see, believing in God with faith is what makes you righteous. And that's what Adam and Eve were before they bit the fruit. But when you add works, there's consequences. That works made them unrighteous. And so now the consequences are fine. You wanted to do your own works? Well, then here you go. Now the work that you're going to do is going to cause you extreme difficulty. You wanted to do your own works? Fine. Now, Eve, the work of pregnancy that, you, that was a gift that in faith would have been an easy delivery is now going to cause you painful. You want to do your own works? Well, then here are the consequences from it. So from the beginning... Works can never, never justify us before God because it was work, works, our own works, humanity's own works that made us unrighteous. Faith is what Adam and Eve gave up. And works is what Adam inherited because of sin. Faith is what brings us back to relationship with God. And now here's how the Lord redeems it. This is the beautiful picture of the gospel. Here's how the Lord redeems it. Adam and Eve were created and were believing God in faith. They do their own works and now they're unrighteous and we're all unrighteous and we think we're righteous because of the works that we do. At least the people that think they are. And even as Christians, we come and struggle with, oh my gosh, am I? We measure things by our works. And again, there's a tension there because, you know, Jesus says, if you love me, obey my commandments. But non-Christians will measure themselves by their works. So here's what happens. Faith brings us back into relationship with God. And here's how God flips it. I'm going to actually send my son to do all the works and redeem all the sinful works of humanity, including all of us. I'm going to send my son to do all of the work perfectly in faith, the way Adam was supposed to do. And then I'm going to credit people with righteousness, declare them not guilty for all the sinful works that they've done because they have faith in Jesus. So, so God brings us back to the faith 
in the garden by saying, we believe God. And Abram was the first one to do this. Abram saw this and thought, I believe God. This is incredible. So what Jesus does is Jesus comes and he takes on the work of, and what was his work? He subdued the earth. Jesus subdues the earth by his blood. Through the work of perfect obedience to God in faith. Works outside of that faith is always unrighteous. This is why Isaiah tells us our works are like filthy rags. Faith is the, the basis for our righteousness before God because works is what made us unrighteous before God. And works are how unrighteous people justify their ability to be able to go to heaven and those works will never do it because they're not accompanied by faith. So to sum it up in a sentence, it's faith in Jesus, not works for Jesus that make us righteous. It's faith in Jesus, not works for Jesus. Or it's faith in Jesus before works for Jesus. Because we do do things to honor the Lord. To further prove the point that I'm making about you can't inherit righteousness by your works. To further prove this point, here's what Paul says, and he uses a common sense analogy in verse 4 and 5. Listen to what he says here. Romans 4, 4, and I quote, Now to the one who works, pay is not credited as a gift, but as something owed. But to the one who does not work, but believes on him who declares the ungodly to be righteous, his faith is credited for righteousness. So here's the, here's the analogy. A person who works, their pay is not credited as a gift. So let's make this personal. Imagine you're in your office, it's payday, and your manager comes up and your supervisor, and they come to you and say, hey, we just want to say thank you. We recognize the work that you're doing, and we just wanted to give you a little gift. And they give you a gift in an envelope, and you're thinking, wow, this is a bonus. And you open it up, and it's exactly your paycheck, what you get. You'll be looking over, you'll be looking through the envelope like, what? And they'll be like, here you go, thank you so much for this little gift from us to you. And you'll be like, I'm sorry, how, how is this a gift? He's like, well, this is a gift. We're giving. Like, no, 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 I put in 55 hours this week, champ. How is this a gift? I've earned this. You see, you would be offended if your boss gave you a check and said, thank you, this is a gift. And it was the actual payment that you worked for. It wouldn't make sense to you, and this is the point Paul's making. Listen, if works, if works, if someone can do works that glorify God, then forgiveness is not a gift. It's owed to you. You see? It's, God has to owe you. If it's based on works, then God has to owe you. If there can be some obedience that you can do to please God, then it has to be he owes you this. But see, the point is, is it's not. You see, payment, when it's work-oriented, is not a gift. It's a responsibility. You've earned that thing. You, just, you get your paycheck and it ain't a couple more dollars on it. They tell you it's a gift. 
You're going to have a problem. You're going to be going to human resources. You're going to write a clip. You're going to do something. You might even ask to meet with us. How do I think through this? Then them illustrations, when we talk about choking people out, will be exactly the first time you experience that. No. That's the point. It's not, it's not a gift. It's something owed to you. God owes it to you if you can do the work required. But if you can't do the work required, then God doesn't owe it to you. And this is why he says this in verse 5. But to the one who does not work, but believes on him who declares, listen to this, the ungodly to be righteous, his faith is credited for righteousness. Now, this is an important distinction. Listen to what he's saying. But to the one who doesn't work, who cannot do any work that obeys God to be considered righteous by God, but believes on God who declares the ungodly to be righteous, his faith is credited for righteousness. Don't miss what he's saying. Listen to what he's saying. You declare the ungodly to be righteous. So when we believe that we who are ungodly, God declares us as righteous, it's credited to us as righteousness. You see what I'm saying? When you believe your identity in Christ, whom God, when you believe that Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead to forgive you for your sins, you, it's credited to you because you're ungodly, because I'm ungodly and everyone's ungodly. But when we believe that God calls the ungodly righteous, when you believe your identity in Christ, it's credited to you and I as faith. That's a huge point. Because that's what we really believe, to be honest. And this is it's the wildest thing. We can be, we can not trust God that we'll get through COVID or that he'll get us through a trial, but we trust him that when we die, we're going to stand before him and be called, declared righteous. The scariest thing in the world to trust God with is your eternal destination. So if you trust God with your eternal destination, then why are we not trusting him with everything else, like the small things, like keeping us safe if that's his will? or helping us get through tumultuous cultural times. See, this is what he's talking about. You believe God calls the ungodly righteous because of Jesus Christ that's credited as faith. It's credited to God as righteousness. That is insane. Now, if a person can do the work, then it's owed him. Well, guess who did the work? Jesus. So guess what he's owed? us. John 17, he prays for the ones that God gave him. We are his prized possession, the bride. He's owed what? Us. And owed what from us? Our gratitude, our obedience, because he did the work. So he's the one owed. Y'all still don't believe me. Look, to further prove the point, that a person being righteous before God is by faith and not works, and how much of a blessing this is, Paul pulls from David. So he, start, he, he mentions Abraham, and now he pulls from David. So these would be, to the Jews, these would be the heavyweights of their faith. You add Moses and Elijah, and you got, okay, these these the heavy hit. This the, this the four horsemen. This the Mount Rushmore of Judaism. And then he goes to David and he says, look, he quotes this reading in verse six. And I quote, 
He said, just as David also speaks of the blessing of the person to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. You see, listen, just as David also speaks of the blessing of the person to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. This is what he says. And he's quoting, he's pulling this from Psalm 32. And he says this, blessed are those whose lawless acts are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the person the Lord will never charge with sin. <laughs> Let's read this one more time. One more time. Rewind that back. Blessed are those whose lawless acts are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Let's just stop there for a second. Listen to how the work is being described in these passages. Listen to first, it's, first it's, it's describing how the person is perceived by God. Blessed. Blessed. And then it describes why they're blessed. They're law, whose lawless acts are forgiven. There's the work. Lawless acts. Lawless opposite of God's commands, lawless, incapable of pleasing God, lawless, not good enough to be forgiven apart from grace, lawless, everything that everyone says why they think they should go to heaven apart from faith in Jesus Christ, lawless, forgiven, Next line, and whose sins, sin, doing what God said not to do. Simple, simple description of sin. Or if we're going to use the Genesis 3 paradigmatic reality, then it's defining good and evil on our own apart from God. Fundamentally speaking, all human beings are righteous. They think they're righteous. We're self-righteous. That's, that's the main fundamental issue. We've, we define righteousness in ourselves, and from that righteousness, we create our own standard of works. And that works in our minds is supposed to get us to where we're going to go, even if we don't even keep the standard ourselves. This is why God said, listen, I can judge your conscience because all people have a standard of works righteousness that they think earns them that, earns them a status, but everyone, no one is able to even keep their own conscience. If there was no law of God, if there wasn't that, if you never hear the gospel of Jesus Christ, if people who have died that never heard the message, God can still evaluate them based on their conscience because all of us inherited from Adam and Eve a works-based righteousness. But we define what it is. It's not defined by faith. This is why it's faith that is credited as righteousness, not works. Works from the time they bit the fruit are always unrighteous. And that was their work. That was a work on their own, separated from faith. So you got lawless acts and sins are covered. Verse 8, blessed again is the person the Lord will never charge with what? Not good deeds. Not the ability to make it to heaven apart, but, but with sin. 
but sin. This is good news. You know why it's good news? Because we violate our consciences and we violate God's law often. Often. And if it was, if, it, if those were the only way to get to heaven, we'd all be out. Tupac had a song one time called, I Wonder If Heaven Got a Ghetto. We would all be living there. And it's called hell. This is the fundamental reality. This is why God looks at faith. You believe. But let, let's keep going because there's, 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 more, there's more here. All right, so, so Paul is making this argument that it's, not, it's about faith in God. It's about faith, not works. It's about faith in Jesus, not circumcision. It's about, he's trying to make the point, listen, I told you, all of sin and falls to the glory of God. We pointed out the Gentile sins, we pointed out the Jews' sins. We hit everyone. Now we're showing you, historically, from the history, that Abraham, who was the father of the faith, that David, who was the great king and the patriarch of the faith, we're showing you, and mind you, we, we won't even get into the fact that the offspring that God told Abraham about was singular. So it was the same offspring that he was talking about to Eve and that Jesus comes in the lineage of the son of David, whom David's sin made God say, because you've done this, the sword will not leave your house. Set in motion the sword to eventually come to the Savior by dying on the cross. We won't even talk about that. Let's just deal with the reality. What he's saying here. We're looking at everyone. Abraham, faith before, right, his faith, not works. David, lawless acts, sins are forgiven. Then he brings it back to circumcision again. He brings it back just to make sure that we're in the same place. Let's not forget where we're at. Paul brings us back to circumcision. And he says this in, in Romans 4, verse 9. Is this blessing for the circumcised only then? For the circumcised then? Or is it also for the uncircumcised? For we say... Faith was credited to Abraham for righteousness, quoting from Genesis 15, 6. In what way then was it credited? While he was circumcised or uncircumcised? It was not while he was circumcised, but uncircumcised. And he received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while still uncircumcised. This was to make him the father of all who believe, but are not circumcised so that the righteousness may be credited to them also. Oh, he's going in right now. He's going in. And he became the father of the circumcised, who were not only circumcised, but who also follow in the footsteps of the faith of our father Abraham while he was still uncircumcised. He's going in right now. Here's what he's trying to say. Okay, when was Abraham credited with righteousness? When did that happen? And he's asking a question. This is a chronological question. This is what he's asking. It's chronology right here. So, okay, at what point was Abraham justified before God? At what point did, was, did God say to Abraham, you are righteous? Was it before circumcision or after circumcision? When is it? And he says, well, it was afterwards. And he gives the motive for why. So that those who are not circumcised would be credited as righteousness if they have the same faith that Abraham had. That's what he's saying. He said, listen, yes, God chose the Jews to be the people in which he gave the law. We saw that in Romans 3. 
and in which the Savior comes out of, that, 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 that nation. But it was never, faith was never just for that nation. When God told Abraham, look up in the sky and count all these, all these stars, if you can count them all, this is how many descendants you will have. Those weren't all Jews up there. Those were all people who would have faith in God like Abraham did. So to prove the chronology, here's what Paul's talking about. He quotes Genesis 15, 6. This is when it was said that he was saved. And Paul's making an assumption that they understand the narrative of Abraham. That 15, 6 is first, and then Genesis 17 is next. So here's what Paul's referring to, to make his point, that Abraham was declared righteous before he did the work of circumcision. He was declared righteous. Here's what he's referring to, Genesis 17, beginning in verse 9. Here's what, here's what God says. After he changed his name from Abram to now Abraham, here's what he says in Genesis 17. Paul's referring to this moment. God also said to Abraham, as for you, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations are to keep my covenant. This is my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you, which you are to keep. Every one of your males must be circumcised. You must circumcise the flesh of your foreskin to serve as a sign of the covenant between me and you. Throughout your generations, Every male among you is to be circumcised at eight days old. Every male born in your household or purchased from any foreigner and not your offspring, whether born in your household or purchased, he must be circumcised. My covenant will be marked in your flesh as a permanent covenant. If any male is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, that man will be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. And then you skip down to verse 23 of, of Genesis 17, and he says this. So Abraham took his son Ishmael and those born in his household or purchased every male among the members of Abram's household, and he circumcised the flesh of their foreskin on that very day, just as God said to him. Abraham was 90 years old when the flesh of his foreskin was circumcised. That's another description of saying he was in serious pain. And his son Ishmael was 13 years old when the flesh of his foreskin was circumcised. On that very day, Abraham and his son Ishmael were circumcised, and the men of his household, whether born in his household or purchased from a foreigner, were circumcised. So here's the chronology that Paul's pointing out. Abraham was declared righteous in Genesis 15:6, and Abraham was given the covenantal work of circumcision in Genesis 17. Years later, years later. So Paul was appealing, yes, Abraham was righteous. Yes, Abraham circumcised. And that was the beginning of why the Jews get circumcised at eight days old. That was a covenantal agreement. That was a contract between God and Abraham. I'm going to do this. I'm going to be your God. And you're going to be my people. You do this. It's a covenant. It's basically a contract. And he's saying, Genesis 15, 6, Abram believed the Lord and he credited to him his righteousness comes way after, way before Genesis 17, 9. So here's the big picture that Paul is trying to point out. Circumcision was never meant to be righteous without faith in God. It was God reminding the Israelites to be righteous because God made a covenant with them to be their God. So the circumcision was a reminder of their responsibility, not a removal of it. 
It's not that way. This is, it's not the same thing, but somewhat similar to, to Christians who grow up, in a, people who grow up in a Christian home. You have a greater responsibility to that faith than someone who never heard of it. Like, my kids are growing up in a home where they know who Christ is. Their dad's a pastor. We talk, we pray, we read scriptures. You know, we do that stuff. And so my sons know we ask for forgiveness. You know, we understand repentance, understand grace and wrath. And, you know, the kids, so they're still learning. Shoot, I'm still learning. But there's an understanding there. And so there's a degree in which they have heard things at a younger age than I'd never heard. I didn't hear till I was older. There's a greater responsibility given. So when people who grow up in the faith have been a Christian for a long time walk away from it, that's crazy. The scripture talks about those who knew and did not do will be beaten with many blows. Why? Because to whom much is given, much is required. People misuse that verse. That's not talking about just gifts and personality. That's talking about knowledge of God. It's not just talking about, oh, you're really extrovert, so you're supposed to be out there in front of everyone. Nah, I know some introverts that are way more gifted than me than preaching. Way more better than me. That doesn't, that doesn't mean anything. It's not talking about the personality. To whom much is given, much is required. It's, talking about your in, it's more talking about your introduction, your knowledge of God. You've been given a knowledge of God from a young age, much is required of that. Just like pastors, James 3, me and Mike's favorite verse. Not many of you should presume to be teachers. Why? Because you know that we will be judged with a stricter judgment. Oh, my favorite verse in scripture. I want to be judged stricter than all of you. Why? Because I'm a pastor. I'm supposed to know better. There's a responsibility that comes. And this is what the Jews were given. You were given a responsibility. It didn't remove you from the responsibility. The grace that we've been given by God doesn't remove us from the responsibility to be holy. It makes us more responsible for glorifying God because we know better. This is why over the summer we were pushing hard against don't fall victim to politics and race and all this stuff. Because while we live in this world and that's functionally a part of what we deal with, that's ultimately not our identity. I'm a Christian first and a black man second. And it will always be that way. Because God ordained that. I want to talk about, I want to answer this question. Why circumcision? I think that's an interesting thing that God did. Why circumcision? Like God could have chosen any way to make a covenant. It's just, sometimes when you stop and think, like, I wonder, I wonder why God chose this particular thing. Like, in all honesty, God could have chosen any way to bring about all these things. But why did he choose these things specifically? Maybe he doesn't always tell us why, but, you know, we're free to speculate on what the Bible doesn't say as long as it doesn't contradict what it does say. And one of the things I think is fascinating is circumcision, is go, it shows God's going to great lengths to redeem even the mistakes that we make. And by this, I mean this. Circumcision, 
happens to be the body part that Abram used to try to create the promise that God gave him outside of what God had required of him. And what I mean is in Genesis 16, here's what happens. So God told Abraham in Genesis 15, you will have an offspring that will be as numerous, that, you're, that you're, 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 there's going to be an heir that comes from your own body. He didn't say where yet. He just said it comes from your own body. And if you look at the stars, it's going to be your offspring. And then in Genesis 16, we see this. Abram's wife, Sarai, had not, had not born any children for him, but she owned an Egyptian slave named Hagar. Sarai said to Abram, since the Lord has prevented me from bearing children, go to my slave. Perhaps through her I can build a family. And Abram agreed to what Sarai said. So Abram's wife, Sarai, took Hagar, her Egyptian slave, and gave her to her husband Abram as a wife for him. This happened after Abram had lived in the land of Canaan 10 years. He slept with Hagar and she became pregnant. When she, meaning Hagar, saw that she was pregnant, her mistress became contemptible to her. Then Sarai said to Abram, you are responsible for my suffering. I put my slave in your arms, and when she saw that she was pregnant, I became contemptible to her. May the Lord judge between me and you. All right, there's a lot of marriage principles in this passage I'm not getting into. But look at what, look at, listen what Abram did. Like Adam, he listened to his wife. This might be why Jesus had no wife, because when you listen to your, never mind, I'm not going to go there. So it's so like, Adam, Dean, don't make me laugh. Well, so he listens to his wife, and he tries to, you know, God didn't say how this would come about, but, what, but listen to what Sarai said. It's not, he's not giving me any children, so you got to do it with her. Uh, presumably, Hagar was much younger. So he listens to his wife, and he has a child. Now, God creates, makes some kind of, not a covenant, sort of a covenant with Hagar, and, and, and what people think is Ishmael, who was, became Abraham's son, eventually became what Islam is. So many people trace Islam back to Ishmael, that God promised to bless this child and that he would be wild as a donkey. And many people trace that back to Ishmael. So what he did was, by having sex with her, using his sexual organ to get her pregnant, God redeems that mistake by using that sexual organ to be the covenant in which he makes with Abraham. That's a crazy thing that God is doing right there. He's redeeming even that issue. I say the body part that you used to try to force the covenant that I made with you, I'm going to redeem that by using that same body part to establish you as my people. That's how God is. He's just, he just be doing his thing. Another reason why I think circumcision is the way is because if you think about what it actually is, it's cutting the flesh and bleeding. There's blood that's going to come from that. It's just a reality. You cut the flesh and it bleeds, blood comes from that. I think circumcision in many ways sort of foreshadows Jesus' flesh being cut and bled. It sets it, it doesn't, it doesn't directly say, but it, but it shows you, like it, it foreshadows in a, in a sense this, this idea that, that the covenant that God makes with his people is going to come with the cutting of the flesh and the bleeding, the shedding of blood. And even in a minute sense like this, this sets in stage the moment when Jesus will be cut, 
when Jesus' blood will bleed and establish a new covenant with God's people. If these are reasons why circumcision is the reason why God chose, he's just all the more incredible to me for. He's just so detailed and it just all connects if it's legitimate. If it's not, it sounded cool. All right, to finish this up, in the last couple of verses, to further make the point, Paul does two things. He gives a theology of Abraham's faith, and then he gives the reality of Abraham's faith. So if you remember last summer, we started right when COVID hit, when our theology and our reality meet. That was our series for a bit. Here's the theology of Abraham's faith, beginning in verse 13. For the promise to Abraham or to his descendants that he would inherit the world was not through the law, but through the righteousness that comes by faith. If those who are of the uh, those who are of the law are heirs, faith is made empty and the promise nullified. So he's just repeating his point. If you are an heir of God because you obeyed the law, then there's no need to have faith. That means the promise of faith is just it's nullified. It's nullified. It doesn't work. It doesn't matter. It's dead if you can do it by the law. Verse 15 of, of, of uh, Romans 4. Because the law produces wrath, and where there is no law, there is no transgression. This is why the promise is by faith, so that it may be according to grace to guarantee it to all the descendants. So in other words, if, if, a, if we're going to be children of Abraham because we have the faith like Abraham, then we can't all of a sudden now be seen and given righteousness by any works that we do because then it wouldn't be like Abraham. That's the point. So he's saying like father, like sons and daughters. Right? You, you can't have the faith of Abraham unless you believe like Abraham believed is essentially what he's saying. If you can have Abraham's promise of righteousness by works that you do, then you're not a child of Abraham. And you can't because the law, talking about the Mosaic law, the law reveals that no one can keep it perfectly. James said this, if you break one commandment, you've broken them all. So he says again in verse 16, this is why the promise is by faith, so that it may be according to grace to guarantee it to all the descendants, not only to those who are of the law, the Jews, but also to those who are of Abraham's faith. He is the father of us all. In other words, people are going to have faith and believe like Abraham that are not Jews. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations, going back to Genesis 15. He is our father in God's sight, in whom Abraham believed. The God who gives life to the dead calls things into existence that do not exist. He believed, hoping against hope, so that he became the father of many nations according to what had been spoken. So will your descendants be. So here again, he says, Abraham believes that God, he gives life to the dead. And that he becomes the father of many nations, which includes us. That's the theology of his faith. Here's the reality. The reality means how it how did it practically play itself out. Here's what it says in verse 19. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body to be already dead since he was about 100 years old and the deadness of Sarah's womb. He did not waver in unbelief. So here's his reality. He believes theologically this is going to happen. Here's the reality. He did not waver in unbelief at God's promise, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God because he, he was fully convinced that what God had promised he was able to do. Therefore, it was credited to him for righteousness. 
Now, it was credited to him was not written for Abraham alone, but for us also, before us, also for us. It was credited to us who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. He was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Now, it says Abraham didn't weaken in faith. Why didn't he? Didn't he have sex with Hagar? Why does God not see that as weakened in the faith? Well, because in Genesis 15, God didn't tell Abraham how he was going to have a seed. He wanted Abraham to wait and just believe, and he would tell him later. So in Genesis 16, Abraham, it's not clear that it's going to come from Sarah. God tells Abraham in Genesis 17 that it's actually going to come from Sarah. That's why it wasn't necessarily unbelief. It was a mistake that God redeems. So here's a question then. How does Abraham's faith correlate to ours? The theology of his faith is he believed God could bring life and air from death into his body that was too old. So he believed God could bring life from death. He was 100. Sarah was 90. It would be all of us, if we heard a 90-year-old woman got pregnant, it would make world news because it would be like, what in the world? I mean, we worry about women who get pregnant in their 40s and 50s because of the medical realities of it. So a 90-year-old woman, her body, her womb is dead. Abraham's 100. That season is over. It's dead. And Abraham believed that he believed God that God would give him an heir. So how is that correlated to our faith? Well, we believe God can bring life from the death as well because we believe that Jesus died and then rose from the dead. You see, even though it's not the same person, it's that God can do the same thing. So God brings life from death in Abraham's body that, that the seed is connected to. And then we believe that God brought life from death through Jesus. He resurrected from the dead. This is why Romans 10, when we get there, and we're going to get there, when we get to Romans 10, it tells us that if you believe that Jesus, you believe in him and that he rose from the dead, that's connected. You see that? Because that's Abraham's faith. You must believe that he died for your sins and rose from the dead for the forgiveness of your sins. That's connected. Why? Because that's what Abraham believed. We are sons and daughters of Abraham. We believe that God can bring life from death. And you know what? Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, uses that same reality as an analogy for us. What does it say? We were dead in trespasses and sins. We were dead in transgressions and sin. Without God, without hope in this world. That's why Tim sings and not me. We were dead in our trespasses. But what does God do? He gives us life in the spirit. This is why we have hope for mission and evangelism. Because even though people are dead, we know that God brings life to what's already dead because he did it for Abraham, he did it through Jesus, and he did it to all of us. So when we have faith that other people who are dead can be brought to life, it spurs on the reality for mission. That's why it's not good when we don't have confidence or don't act in confidence that people can and will be saved because it's metaphorically or analogically God bringing people from death to life. It's the foundation of our faith. You see, it's all connected. Abraham believed that God can bring death from life when he, gained, he brought life from a dead body. Jesus died and then rose from the dead on his own. God raised him from the dead. 
Jesus, we were dead in trespasses and now we have life. And so now we believe that the dead that we see can also have life. It's all connected. That's the theology of our faith. What's the reality of it? The reality is he didn't waver in unbelief. He didn't waver. He believed that God was going to do it, and then God did it. And he didn't waver in unbelief so much so that we know in Genesis 21, when God told him to kill, kill Isaac, he was ready to do it. He was ready to do it. He told the, the two servants that were walking with him, me and the boy will be back. Because he believed that if God asked me to kill him, then God's going to bring him back from the dead because he made a promise. And his word is a promise. His word that we read, it may not be audible like what Abraham had or wasn't coming through a vision like what Abraham had, but it's still his word. And he made promises in his word. And he promised that if we believe in Jesus Christ, that we would be saved. If we call out on Jesus' name, that we would be saved. He made a promise to us. And so we don't waver in the faith. We don't waver in the faith of our identity. When we struggle with sin, we don't waver in who Jesus says we are. When we, we persevere in the faith, we, we, and with joy sometimes, sometimes we just got to laugh at our circumstances. There are times we look, we came in here, I told Mike something, something that happened, something petty, something that happened with our dryer. And then he quoted Dean saying, man, it's always something. And we just laughed, it's always something. From the smallest thing, and we were able to laugh about it, find joy in it. Why? Because in the grand scheme of things, that's not significant in light of eternity. He didn't waver in unbelief. We don't waver in unbelief at who Christ says that we are or who God says that we are in Jesus Christ. Abraham wasn't sinless. He lied to Abimelech. He was scared, almost had Abimelech's whole household killed. If God hadn't intervened, Abimelech, would it have been curtains for him? And he came and said, man, why'd you, why'd you say she was your sister? And that's a whole different story because she was supposed to be old. I don't know what was wrong with Abimelech. Them folks was wild to take her into his house. But that's a different sermon. The point is, is we, struggling with sin is not wavering in unbelief in your identity in Christ, or it shouldn't. It's a part of the process of redemption that we're on until he returns or calls us home. So two take-homes are don't, don't waver in unbelief about your identity. Abraham did not. That's our reality. And two, God brings life from death. Just like he did it with Abraham, Jesus, with us, we need to have hope that other people can and will be saved because they're dead in their trespasses and sins, but God is a specialist at bringing death, life from death. This concludes our treatment of Romans chapter 4. Let's pray. Father, we we have a theological term that we use called ex nihilo, which means you bringing, bringing something out of nothing, you creating life from, no, from nothing. 
Well, you've proven that. That ex nihilo term is, is seen. There's a, we've just done a brief biblical theology of that. You calling, bringing life from death. And I pray that, that as we think about our own lives, that we don't trust, not that we dismiss works. We, just like Adam, Adam was given works that was predicated on faith. When he did his own works righteousness, it, it, it became all works from then on became sinful unless Jesus, who perfectly did those works, and our faith in him makes our works predicated now on faith in Jesus. So we're not trying to say that we're, we don't look as, as the world as people who, who judge themselves by their own works righteousness we judge ourselves by our faith in Jesus Christ and his work. And then you reward us for whatever righteous works that we do, which is another amazing reality in and of itself. So, Father, may this, this, this is not far from our culture. This, your word is so, it's so applicable for us today. And I know that we're home and we're struggling with COVID and we're just tired of watching messages on the TV. And sometimes we don't even, aren't even away from our family enough to feel like we apply them. Lord, I pray that you would take the psychological damage that COVID is doing on our church and remind them of these beautiful realities that to, to continue to trust you, continue to persevere, continue to see things with joy and to, to recognize that, that our, we don't waver in our unbelief because we're like, we have faith like Abraham. We don't waver in our confidence in your promises. And one of your main promises is if we are sons and daughters, we are forgiven, declared righteous if we believe in you. And I pray that that would be, and then we have, and let us have faith. Lord, as we talk about digital kingdom on Wednesday, let us have faith that other people who are dead, the world looks more dead now than ever to me, but you are specialist in bringing life from death. May that be so in my, in my time, in our time as a church, for your glory and our good. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Kurt. Um, we do have a question here. And remember, everyone, if you have any questions about uh, today's sermon, to text your question in as soon as possible. Uh, this question... Uh, is about Galatians 3. So a D group just read Galatians 3 last week. Uh-huh. And they were noticing how it, um, and the person is noticing how uh, it was just what we've been talking about, um, you know, yeah, righteousness right. by faith and not works. Right. Except Paul seemed very upset with the Galatians and much more, and had a much more frustrated tone with them than in the one used in Romans. Right. So why was his tone so different in these two books' chapters? Good question. So if you look at what Paul is asking at the beginning of the chapter, he says, who has bewitched you? Now, I'm, I might be, I have diff- too many translations memorized, right? So I might be weaving in and out of translations. But essentially, he's saying, have you who begun with the Spirit, like you trusted the Lord in faith, now you see, so let me back up real quick. What was happening in that time was people were still fighting over circumcision. So if you look at chapter two, when 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 Paul corrects Peter, it's because they were all eating together. They saw themselves as brothers. You got Jews and Gentiles. There's no real great way. It would be like, it would be like, the Black Panthers eat having breaking eating meals with the Ku Klux Klan. It's just like, huh? or the nation of Islam. 
be like Farrakhan, man, taking pictures with the Grand Wizard of the Ku Klux Klan. It would just be like, man, you got to be kidding me. It, that's what was happening. It was that on that level. And so when it said the Judaizers, people that came from James, they still believed that, now Galatians, I think, was before the, the uh, Jerusalem Council in Acts 15. Galatians is credited as, most people credit Galatians as Paul's first letter. So it's A.D. 49. So the Jerusalem Council, I believe, was after that. So they're still fighting over this idea that you must be circumcised and obey the law of Moses and believe in Jesus. In fact, when we read that, I think it was last week, the Jerusalem Council in, in Acts 15, it said brothers, believers stood up and said that same thing. So that's what was happening. And Paul's whole point was, no, you can't do that. And Peter knew that. So Peter was eating with them and saw them as brothers. So when he saw the circumcision party people coming, he moved away. And all the Jews moved away from the Gentiles. And that's why Paul said, you who are a Jew eat with Gentiles. You know, he said he was out of step with the gospel. That was essentially like fear. It was fear of man. It's fear of man is what it was. So when he gets to Galatians 3, he's telling them that the issue for him is that you're, you're going back to circumcision? After you accepted the Lord this, through the Spirit of God in faith, now you're going to go back to circumcision? So he said, who has bewitched you? Have you who begun with the Spirit are now returning to the flesh? Like the reason why you trusted in Jesus is because you were told that you can't obey God and make it to heaven in the flesh. So why are you going back to the flesh? That's his argument. That's what he's upset about. And he's frustrated because I think he's saying, you know, hey, you clearly know the truth. Why are you going back to the lie? It's similar to like the Egyptians, to the uh, Israelites, when they wanted some food and they didn't get the food that they wanted from God. They were like, man, remember when we had them nice meat pots in, 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 in Egypt and all that stew, man, and that bread? They were more into that than they were um, believing that God had saved them from that. So it's basically, why are you going to be a slave again when you be made free? That's his argument. With that being said, that's all we got? That's cool. With that being said, uh, let's, Mike's going to lead us in communion. As we just heard, Romans chapter 4, uh, verse 5 says, But to the one who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited for righteousness. And that is part of we, what we will be celebrating um, as we once again turn our eyes towards the sacrifice of Jesus Christ because the way in which that righteousness is applied to us who are, for the most part, in our church, Gentiles, 
um, is through the finished work of Christ, which Pastor Kurt elaborated on near the close of his message. Um, but what I would like to do is uh, based off of uh, motivated by what's found in verse 16, which says, this is why the promise is by faith, so that by it, according to grace, to guarantee to all the descendants, not only the ones who, not only the one who is of the law, but also the one who is of Abraham's faith, he is the father of us all. In anticipation of going through this review of chapter four, it made sense to me that we should try to learn from uh, the father of our faith, Abraham, and connect it as was done at the end of this message to the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And so um, I'm going to look at, we're going to look at one of the passages that elaborates a bit about Abraham's faith, and that is found in uh, Hebrews chapter 11, verses 8 through, well, verses 8 through 12, and then 13 through 16. Um, it says, by faith, speaking about Abraham, and I didn't give the guys the, uh, this these uh, passages, but I know you still own a Bible. I have a Bible app so you can follow along. I'm reading from the CSB version. It says, by faith, Abraham, when he was called, obeyed and set out for a place that he was going to receive as an inheritance. He went out even though he did not know where he was going. By faith, he stayed as a foreigner in the land of promise, living in tents as did Isaac and Jacob, co-heirs of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. By faith, even Sarah herself, when she was unable to have children, received power to conceive offspring, even though she was past the age, since she considered the one who promised, who had promised, was faithful. Therefore, from one man, in fact, from one as good as dead, came offspring as numerous as the stars of the sky and as innumerable as the grains of sand along the seashore. Not only did you know, you know about uh, Hebrews chapter 11, it's called the Hall of Faith. And so it has numerous people in addition to Abraham and Sarah who who exercised their faith. Uh, they believed God, even though, um, as is alluded to, they did not receive the entire reward of what they what they were. They didn't receive all that they were anticipating. There are three things that I think we should uh, uh, embrace in uh, the way this passage describes Abraham as our own. Uh, I think we should embrace the remembrance that it starts off by saying by faith, Abraham, when he was called, that we should remember that we have been called. We should remember our identity as we have been encouraged to do throughout this message that we just heard. We also should remember that because of our identity, that we are foreigners. So Abraham stayed in the place that he was going to receive as a foreigner. The people of God will one day inherit the earth. 
But right now we're foreigners. We're, we're exiles. This, this world system is not based on the, the things of God. It's based on the things of the enemy that we, that we prayed about earlier. Um, and, and, and so the, there's a prince of the power of the air that operates things right now. Uh, right now we are foreigners. This, as it is, is not our home. And we should, in light of that, we should make sure that we remember our identity so that our works that are based on our faith. One of the things that Pastor Kurt said about Adam and he also said it about Abraham was that their work was predicated on their faith in God. The fall takes our works to be predicated on our own righteousness, that self-righteousness. But we must remember that we are foreigners and we must, we must, we must look forward. Abraham he consistently looked forward from the time when God spoke to him and the times where God reiterated to him what God was going to do. He looked forward and he didn't even as Sarah didn't count the one who promised as unfaithful. Instead, they counted him as faithful. And here we stand. Here we are for two over 2000 years. People who have the faith of Abraham. One who was as good as dead, but is alive even in Christ, as are we. This we are able to apply, not because Abraham was a good example, and not even, and not only because Abraham was our, is our father in the faith, but because we have faith in the object that Abraham had faith in. No, Christ wasn't around, but he looked forward, and that's what I mean by he didn't, and that's what Scripture means, where they didn't receive it all. They didn't, they didn't know it all, just like the prophets who prophesied about Jesus. They, they, they understood that they weren't just like, they weren't going to inherit and see everything that they were prophesying, and they wondered about these things. We don't look, look forward to the cross we look back to it, but we still look forward to being with God. We look forward to being in that city that he has created, that new Jerusalem. We look forward to that, and we must look forward to it because we never know what types of days are ahead of us. We had great joy, at least I did, um, and great anticipation with um, with with with. Not that my faith was in this because it's, it's not, but um, but in okay, there's a vaccine, so there's a, there's a, there's a light at the end of the tunnel, and now we're hearing about not only variants but different kinds of variants, and and being more contagious and more deadly, and this and that and the other. So it's not that we know what's coming, and it's not that our hope is in what human beings can do, but our hope should be to, to transcend what we can see and what we experience, and look forward to. What God has for us and not just in some pie in the sky kind of way, but with an acknowledgement of what Jesus said to his disciples in Matthew chapter 16. When he told them before what we call the Great Commission was was stated, um, what we usually quote as the Great Commission, we usually forget to include what he says at the very beginning um, of, of, of his uh, conversation with them there, he said to them, 
all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. All authority was secured because Jesus laid his life down and because he rose from the dead, because he suffered what should have been uh, for us. He suffered that and he he overcame that. And therefore, all authority was given uh, was given to him, even in the book of Revelation, when it when it when it talks about what uh, why to glorify Jesus, it alludes to his being slain but now being alive and so this is the cross right we the shorthand for that that we use is the cross so it's in the cross of Christ that we celebrate our ability to not only be called but to have ears to hear the call and and a heart to respond to the call because of Jesus um we we have not only that but we have we have an acknowledgement that we are foreigners because our desire now because of Jesus is to live in a way that glorifies God because of our faith in him through Jesus Christ and we have a vision for where we will be one day not because we were good but because we're in Christ all of this was accomplished through the cross of Jesus Christ and on his way to the cross Jesus had a final meal with his disciples where he envisioned them for that day when all things would be under his feet. We call it the Lord's Supper. And the Lord's Supper or, the, or, the, or, or, or um, communion is exclusively for those who believe in Jesus Christ, exclusively for those whose identity is in him, exclusively for those who know that they have to live as foreigners because they are connected with him, and exclusively for those who look forward to his return and bringing us to the place that he's prepared for us which we have and we, which we emulate like our father Abraham. But this meal is specifically for that, that family. And so this morning we're going to take the elements. This is how it reads in Matthew 26 when it tells us about what happened it says as they were eating beginning in verse 26 of Matthew 26 as they were eating Jesus took bread blessed and broke it and gave it to the disciples and he said take it this is my body so let's take and eat the wafer which represents the bread that was given and eat it at this time. Then he took a cup, and after giving thanks, he gave it to them and said, drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many, 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 many for you and for me. He saw us there for many, for the forgiveness of sins. 
and then look at him and envision him. But I tell you, I will not drink from this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it with you, new, when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Let us take and drink the juice which represents the cup that he passed to them to drink. Father, I pray that you would help us to exercise the faith that you've given us as a gift, that it would express itself, rather, in our works, but that we would realize that our works are sourced by our faith. They don't, they don't garner us any different status with you. Our status has been, it, it, it is what it is because of Jesus and his sacrifice. Therefore, we have faith in him and we thank you so much for his dying on the cross, for our sins and for forgiving us of our sins and covering our sins. So Lord, we thank you and our desire is to is to have works in, in keeping with repentance. So we thank you that you have brought us to yourself because you called us in love to you even before the foundation of the world. Thank you for predestining us. Thank you for drawing us. Thank you for allowing us to hear you, and thank you for living through us by faith. Lord, bless our week. Use us for your glory. Uh, may Would you bless any who are weary? Would you strengthen them? Would you bless those who feel, the, feel a weight of isolation? Would you, in some way that they, that they can experience, Lord, and they, that they can recognize would you be with them? Would you bless those who are sick among us and raise them up, we pray. And Lord, would you just have your way in our lives. This we pray in Jesus' name, and we thank you. Amen. And God bless you, and thank you for joining us on our live stream. We'll see you on Wednesday night, our members. And for those who aren't our members, we'll see you again on live stream next week.